Think, debate, inspire. Debates on pressing global challenges. A podcast of the Robert Bosch Academy. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast Think, Debate, Inspire of the Robosch Academy. My name is Henry Altaka, Senior Vice President of the Foundation. And I'm Pradnya Bivalkar, a Senior Project Manager at the Robert Bosch Academy. Our guest for this episode is Kamala Makrane. Kamal is currently here at the Academy. It's his last week, leaving next week, sadly, now that the weather finally gets to his liking. And Kamal uh, leads the Global Center for Climate Mobility, which advances regional climate mobility initiatives enabled by the UN, the World Bank, and other regional organizations in Africa, the Caribbean, and the Middle East. And he spearheads the Rising Nations Initiative, uh, about which we are going to talk uh, a bit more at, in detail uh, right now. And I'm very ha happy that you're here with us. And uh, thank you for joining us, Kamal, uh, on your last week in Berlin. Welcome to the podcast from me as well, Kamal. Since you've been here, we've been having a variety of conversations on how the sense of emergency on of what is happening around the world and especially in the area where you work which is in the pacific atoll island states um you also held an event a few weeks ago here in berlin together with our colleagues in the foundation you had a delegation from tuvalu coming in and it was a very insightful event depressing on certain levels but also inspiring in many ways than one I was wondering, you know, during the event, there was also this conversation about loss of culture and heritage, loss of statehood and sovereignty, loss of livelihoods and economic existence. You know, all these are challenges which are mammoth in their own way. And the global community so far has never been in the predicament that they had to address all the challenges at one go. So um, in your work at the Rising Nations Initiative and also um, in your work at the UN before that. I was wondering um, if you could provide us some few insights into some of the solutions that are being currently discussed, deliberated upon. Um, there are a lot of debates happening on some of those probable solutions, let's put it that way. So um, maybe some thoughts on this very abstract and extremely re relevant space, some thoughts. First, thank you very much to be um here, thank you to the Bosch Academy for hosting me and being my family for close to uh, three months, uh, over three months actually. Um, it is a pleasure um, to be with you and to have this conversation. Um, when it comes to the climate crisis, climate action, Pacific Island nations, as you rightly mentioned, um, they are pretty much on the forefront of the crisis and they are on the forefront for the right reasons that you put forward is that they are facing this um, set of challenges at the same time um, and that they have to address and bring solutions that are not only specific but comprehensive and complementary. They don't have the opportunity to be specific, but they have the obligation to be comprehensive. If I can call it, it's very much the shortfall of the international cooperation. It's the shortfall of, uh, of international leadership and it's the shortfall of uh, the international system. Um, it's, um, it feels much more at ease when it addresses one issue specific in nature and concrete. But when you look at complex issues, 
we are still struggling in providing a response that is both macro and micro, um, but with micro elements. We are still struggling to define blueprints and solutions that are both locally anchored, community-led, nation-designed, and globally supported and financed. And I think that is the challenge we're facing today as it relates particularly to Pacific Atoll countries that are facing existential threat as a result of sea level rise and that are hit by many challenges and crises, uh, including the most recent one of uh, COVID that pretty much um, damaged the entire economic system of many islands um, that were uh, leaning on tourism on a specific um, sectors of the economy uh, to, uh, to provide for their population. Hmm. So I have uh, one little follow-up question and one proper question. Uh, the first question would be um, of all the three categories of damages that you've been speaking about, I think, for my perception, um, the loss of statehood and sovereignty seems to be the most abstract, yet the most decisive one, in a sense, because it is dependent on a lot of international cooperation, the, the joint will to make something happen, to enable something. So um, what is your perception? Do you think that the actors at the table are committing themselves? Are they rising to the challenge or do you sense a lot of hesitation in making those commitments? I think it's, I, I think it's important to not differentiate between these three challenges because they relate and they are relevant for specific people and specific systems. Mm -hmm. As you rightly mentioned, statehood and sovereignty, it's at the core of governments, it's at the core of the intergovernmental system, it's at the core of the international-based system. And um, uh, it's unnegotiable for diplomats, it's unnegotiable for uh, civil servants. Uh, but um, for parents, for uh, mothers, for workers, livelihoods and economic existence is at the core of who they are. It's at the core of um, of what they uh, what they see themselves or how they see themselves as the communities. And at the same thing, people at large without um, their sense of heritage, their sense of identity, their sense of anchorage, they feel nothing or nobody. Mm. And I think we should not focus on one aspect and another. And I think that was one of the important lessons. If you speak to the youth, if you speak to um, the eclectic and the vibrant fabric of society, art, culture, heritage, the sense of belonging, it's who they are. If you speak to the government, it's the flag, it's the soul uh, of, the, of the country, it's the land, it's the, um, it's the rights. If you speak to the parents and to the, and to the workers, they don't exist if they don't work, if they don't contribute, if they don't build, if they don't produce. So I will not differentiate mm -hmm. uh, between the three because I am sorry, uh, a minister is not more important than uh, a seafarer, is not more important than a mother, and is definitely not more important than, uh, than a youth uh, uh, activist. Mm. Mm. And, and what I find interesting in this discussion is that if you think ahead, 50, 100, 200 years, right? When those countries are going to be gone, physically gone, like their landmass is going to be physically gone, what's remaining, right? And and so this cultural aspect I find comes in as a very important element of it mm. because the culture can be preserved uh, despite maybe the land being gone. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, correct. And we have seen it before in history. There have been many communities who have faced 
serious challenges throughout history. And they built the resilience, they empowered themselves, they created and defined the support they needed, and they were able to sustain their contribution, sustain their existence, sustain their belonging, and most importantly, ensure that their, um, that their culture, their heritage, bring something to the wider and larger mosaic. Mm. Yeah, but going back to my original question about the international community rising to the challenge. So during the event that you held, there was a lot of discussion amongst various panelists about how rigid some of the international structures are that are responsible for um, granting aid, granting funding to smaller island nation states like Tuvalu in this particular case. One of the speakers also said that you know, uh, the richer countries, particularly from the global north, are being extremely crafty and creative in not honoring their commitments to the loss and damage fund. So, you know, it's it's a very complicated discussion. But as someone who is working in those corridors in the United Nations in different multilateral forums, um, what is your observation in, in the sense of commitment of the international community um, to doing something about this? So it's very interesting because you use the word commitment. The mm. commitment is there. Is the action there? Mm -hmm. That's a work in progress. But the commitment, um, sorry to be plain, the commitment does not carry a price tag. So everyone commits everything, but do very little. And that is um, when people start to lose trust in the system and to lose trust in the, in the global construction, it's when you hear commitments but very little action and pretty much very late action. So the idea or the urgency is how do we go beyond the commitment, particularly commitment usually come in the form of uh, speeches, words and some declarations to something much more concrete, to something much, very much relevant and to something that is, is, um, is uh, actionable. Uh, that's point one. Point two, uh, it's very important to note that when we speak about financial uh, support, assistance, loss and damage, etc., these are pretty much trying to be constructed as global responses. Mm. And as such, they need to ensure a set of principles, uh, which is accountability, responsibility, uh, monitoring, auditing, etc., because it's how we learn from past experiences. What is, uh, and this is understandable, particularly mm. when taxpayers' money is put forward in this, in this regard. What is regrettable is that they do not take into consideration the particular situation of small island states who have very limited capacity and technocracy mm. to manage all these constructions and requirements and, and needs. And literally, if you are going to put half of the Ministry of Finance or Development uh, or Foreign Affairs to put together a proposal, um, who is going to do the rest of the work? Mm -hmm. Who is going to take care of the rest? And uh, because every construct is defined separately, built differently, has a different governance structure, these population, these uh, specific um, countries are faced with you need to apply to the World Bank through this specific um, 
process. And then you have to apply to another um, agency through a different process. So you need people who are expert just in project proposals for the World Bank and others for the, um, the, the green, uh, Global Green Fund and others for the German governments and others for... Do you want these people to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in bringing consultancy firms to apply for a project of a couple of hundreds of uh, thousand dollars? It does not make sense. These processes take at least 18 months to three years to have the grant uh, accepted or approved. By then, the urgency that they were applied to to address, it's already done. The damage has already happened. And they don't have the luxury of time that others can afford. Regrettably, time is not on their side. So three things. One, they need a one-shop stop when it comes to international aid, international support, financing, and, and one, one kind of mechanism uh, that is streamlined. Second, we need to understand that um, if you need to have what you call a tiger team, a task force, etc., that looks into them so they can get an answer in three months versus three years. Last but not least, don't look at them and ask for a set of information, data, knowledge that we know they don't have and do not overwhelm their technocracy, their capacity and skill, because they need that to advance, to implement the adaptation, to manage the population, to support and assist vulnerable communities versus just sitting and sorry, writing, <laughs> writing proposals and following up on, on 20,000 questions that uh, uh, the consultant or the agency has. So one of the one of the goals of your fellowship here was to kind of bring highlight more attention to the fate of the Anatol communities. And you just said, you know, they don't have the time to spare. And we all know climate change is imminent. But one thing I found the most striking that you said uh, earlier in another conversation that the, the temperature level rise and the water level rise is three to four times higher there than it is in other parts of the world. So you know we're talking about the one point five to two point five, but there it's tomorrow. It's not in 20 years. Um, at the same time, so you, you brought attention to these faraway regions from the German perspective of the Anatol Islands. At the same time, climate change doesn't just happen in faraway regions. It happens right here at home, uh, also in Europe. Uh, actually, last year, we did the Richard von Weizsäcker Forum to the Bavarian Alps to talk about the impact of climate change in the Alps, uh, which is you know, something that is very important to Germans and very much more tangible. Um, and we had droughts in Italy. I mean, I don't have to name all those things. So German government uh, or the Germans see themselves as, you know, forerunners in international climate change, uh, right? Angela Merkel was the climate chancellor and now we have climate foreign policy in the foreign ministry and all those things. Meanwhile, a couple of weeks ago, the Bavarian chief prosecutor prosecuted the last generation because of their actions on the streets and kind of is investigating whether they're actually a criminal organization under German law. So there's this tension in society. So yeah, we kind of are in favor of climate change. At the same time, we do want to ride on the Autobahn. Um, so what's your perspective as an outsider who has been here now for more than three months working on climate change issues, more on the international level, but at the same time having been you know, in the German society, where does Germany stand, globally speaking? So first, Germany has a responsibility towards the world because Germany contributed to carbon emissions. And definitely the footprint of a German, I don't have the numbers in front of me. It's much, 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 much higher than a Tuvaluan. And this is 
our shared common good. Because yes, as you rightly mentioned, indeed today it's Tuvalu, but tomorrow is the flooding in Bavaria, high temperatures in, uh, in Berlin, and sea level rise in Hamburg. Already part of Hamburg will build with that idea that they may lose some of the parts of the city to the, to the water. And what is important here, it's the relationship between policy and people. If we don't put people at the core of our policies, do not expect your policies to treat you well tomorrow as people. Mm. And we look at people with capital P because we have this something in common. Germany has been key in building the international based rules system, which ensures predictability, ensures sustainability, and ensures safety for all. We are talking about these three aspects, indeed in a completely different setup than the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but it's still very much relevant for who we are and what we want to be as a global community. So just based on that, it is not only important, but it's expected that Germany leads. That's my first point. My second point... Do you think uh, the German authorities have understood this? I think the Germans are definitely doing much more than others. I think the German authorities are definitely challenging the status quo. Um, I think uh, some aspects are much closer home than others. And this is where I was happy with the Bosch Academy to bring a sense of Pacific urgency to Berlin because the Pacific is just very far. And everyone, when you bring up the, the notion of the Pacific, it's the blue sky, the turquoise water and the coconut uh, trees. And it brings a sense of peaceful holidays and, and paradise. And you are trying to tell them the situation is completely different. These are communities on the front line of the front line of the climate crisis. And you're trying to expose them to a completely different picture and sensitize them of the urgency to prioritize within the urgency. We cannot deny other obligations. We cannot deny other priorities. But it's where should we put some emphasis beyond the obligation. And that's where I was quite happy and uh, with the outcome of the visit, the outcome of the fellowship, is that somehow the German uh, political, intellectual policy ecosystem that sees uh, Africa, Middle East, much closer home, Europe very much home, was exposed to the Pacific. And surprisingly, there are many mechanisms, many instruments to act, but are they tailored for the Pacific? Are they tailored for the needs of the Pacific? And that was, for me, the, the, the most important challenge is to acknowledge that they are and should be a priority and that the instruments put in place by the intellectual ecosystem, policy and political ecosystem, should acknowledge that specificity and be adapted because it's not the Sahel, it's not Antarctica, it's not, um, it's not uh, Southern Europe, it's completely different. And that on its own, it's, it's a tremendous progress to report. 
how much do you think is there really international learning and global south learning happening because i always joke that thank god we have the dutch you know they have centuries of experience um building their country underwater basically um but as you rightly say there are countries in the in, in the pacific region and other parts of the world that have much more immediate experience with the current climate challenges that we could learn from in the global north in quotation mark is that happening is there learning between the different regions in the world from adaptation strategies that have worked in one place maybe can be used in another so it's a very important point because um this brings up three aspects one is there a conversation this is what i'm doing this is what can be done and that is only one aspect if if i can stress the second aspect am i willing to share my knowledge my um my capacity my technology with you and the third one is who is going to pay for it hmm. because the dutch can do many things and have a knowledge and have a capacity and they are willing to to share it but the question is are they willing to work with you in adjusting that specific local solution to your local needs and most importantly are they willing to pay for it hmm. and we are not talking in couple hundred dollars or thousands of dollars and we're not talking about something limited in time because the the sea level is um it's a permanent challenge it's a permanent danger and without discussing the issue of sudden onset because the netherlands is not facing typhoons and hurricanes and tsunamis which means it's it's a different kind of response to for example what caribbean countries or what pacific countries will have to do it's i have to address the sea level rise i have to address the the biodiversity i have to address food security health security but at the same time i need to have early warning system emergency response in case if there is a sudden onset that goes beyond um what is provided and requires a comprehensive uh, response and much more financing that is sustainable and that is permanent with the view of you know ensuring that sense of safety and security can i add one uh, question that i find uh, very interesting from a theoretical point of view uh, that is you know part of your list of activities and measures that you are trying to advance and that's the digital nation state so if i had to summarize it i would say the idea is you know since the land mass is gone the state is not gone yet because there is a question of you know can a state exist without land mass it's a legal question one can define and you have certain ideas on how that could be done and then the question is how do we maintain like what does a state which traditionally has been defined by among other things landmass um survive in the digital world in the 21st century and you you're working on that and i was wondering if you can elaborate a little bit or more where you think the challenges lie in this concept um and as someone who has been socialized in the un system for the better part of your career doesn't that put into question the fundamental understanding what a nation state is if we if we go down that road so the nation state definition is quite clear state and nation people and power it's the, the books are quite clear what is interesting here when But you the talk power about, always involved land right the, the power involved territory did not involve land don't forget that you had an empire the british empire ruled very limited land but ruled the seas mm -hmm. these island countries are large maritime states but are small island nations 
Mm-hmm. It's territory. Mm-hmm. And the definition of territory in our subconscious, it's always related to land. Mm. But you know very well that the richest European countries get their resources from the sea and not from the land. Look at Norway, mm. for example. Look at the Denmark. The biggest shipping industry uh, is, is pretty much linked to a port. So it's very important that we don't confuse landmass with territory mm-hmm. and we don't confuse resources with um, uh, attachment to landmass. That is point one. So territory is not landmass. It's much, much beyond landmass. Second, digital nation state, it's about how do we sustain and how do we ensure responsible governance? inclusive governance and representative governance. What do I mean here? The the government, which is an entity or an element of the state, has rights and has obligations, has monopole in set of sectors and has a set of obligations in many others. That relationship between the government and the outside world happens through representation embassies, happens through um, the capacity to sign treaties, to ratify conventions, extend support or assistance. And then the relationship of that government and its citizens, or of whom the the government is the agent, Mm. it's the one that represents them with the outside world, defends their rights, maintains their privileges, protects their their benefits, Um, it takes place, is shaped. I grew up going to the uh, government office building for every paper. Literally every paper. Germans still do. (laughs) And there are many countries that are trying to limit that physical representation of the government. You don't need to go. Now you take a number before you just was you line up to get access to the services provided by the government, the services provided Uh, by by the authorities to you as a citizen or as um, as a resident in a specific constituency or community. This could be done differently in the age of digital innovation. And there are many countries. Do I need to apply for an insurance by going through an office building or can I do it online? Do I need to apply for my renewal of my passport by having to line up, get the stamp, pay the stamp, or I can do it online. Um, I have a newborn, um, I can upload the documents, get the, the required identification uh, online or shipped to me. Mm. Or do I need to go take a picture in the office building, lined up, I take a number, and then they will tell me to come back in three weeks, and I come back in three weeks, and they say, it's not ready yet, or can I just do this online and wait for the email to tell me it's ready, or have it shipped um, via one of the means of uh, distribution? This is what the digital nation state. It can go beyond that to applying for fellowship, scholarship, education online, having a set of digital health online, being able to speak to a doctor. Do I need to go to a hospital? And I think COVID has proved that a lot of sets of services and functions can be digitized. Same thing for banal court issues. Do we need all to go to the court? Or for example, 
um, uh, do we need, does divorce need to be in person or marriage to be in person? Or do we need to fight, uh, for example, uh, the administration on a ticket and I have to go to court? But th So this is the administrative part, which is already in itself a challenge. And in Germany for decades, we are trying to get more digital and we are stuck somewhere in the 90s. But then there's a whole political part. Mm -hmm. right? So so when you talk to German members of parliament, they will say that the COVID period was for them a real challenge to do their work both in committees and in parliament and kind of among their peers, but also in exchanging with the citizenry, right? Because the it, it doesn't work as well. It didn't work, at least back then, for many of them when you ask them uh, to connect with their constituents uh, online than when they were going to the marketplace on a Sunday evening. And kind of. So do you think, given that maybe the Tuvaluans will be you know, scattered all over the planet. Um, maybe they're going to be concentrated to a certain amount in a certain place. Do you think a political culture can persevere in this digital world? I I, I personally believe so. Um, I teach at the university and when COVID hit, I was told that I need to turn teaching to Zoom. Mm. It is foreign to me. For many professors, They have to connect with their students. And for many students to get the best of the knowledge and education, they have to connect with the with their professor. And having to do that through Zoom, we all have to learn. If it was not challenging, we will not be discussing it. Mm -hmm. It will have already been done and common. Of course, Germany is behind, um, and that is a German challenge. But other countries take uh, just your neighbor, Denmark. Mm -hmm. It's well advanced on this aspect. Estonia. Estonia is far ahead. And we have the, and, and the same thing for the, um, for the mindset of representation. You know, if you have a digital ID and a protected ID, do you need to go lined up and vote in a, in a polling station? I don't think so. You sign contracts online. It's a, it's a contract between you and your society who you're voting for and where you express what your expectations and your needs and you empower someone to represent you. It can be done online. And then, of course, um, the U.S., for example, has C-SPAN channel where you just go in and just follow what's happening in Congress and commissions and etc. You need to provide the people with the opportunity to be engaged and involved. It's at the essence of inclusive democracy. Whether they are going to do it, that is their privilege. We are, they care about it, that is their right, but it has to be there. How many of us have been to a parliament session? I've never been to a parliament, but do I care that it's there? Definitely. Mm. How, how, how often I have voted? Not always there to vote, but do I care that I have the right to vote? Definitely. So I have a follow-up question uh, on this whole notion of digital nation-state. So the nation-state, the political construct moves into the digital space, but the citizens, for them, it's a real-time movement. That's another area that you've also been working on, which is climate-induced migration. And in, in real practice, how would this look for the citizens of Tuvalu, for instance? I, I know that uh, you've been... Um, trying to figure out solutions, what it could look like in a in a scenario, but um, maybe some thoughts on that. Well, the first sad part is that um, uh, as a result of a climate shock, they will be forced to leave the place they call home. Yeah, That's how it looks. Yeah. That is the first look and the one that you cannot deny or delete. And the they're leaving by force, not because they oh, want definitely. to. No 
one wants to leave the place they call home. And I start being myself, someone who had to pursue either studies, intellect, love, or uh, adventure. And you had to leave home because uh, uh, that's how life shaped up things. Uh, but for them, it's of a complete different... But you can always go back. Exactly. There is a choice to go back. For them, there is that... Um, that uh, conundrum contradiction that this is not temporary it's mm. permanent in nature and then there is the concept or the uh, the design of what is home and this is something they have to work on and it's there for them to decide what is home beyond home uh, or what is important for home i can tell you some people you take from them the football team they lose their home mm. uh, for me my family is my home for others, the family is just the beginning of home. Uh, for a third community, it's their synagogue, church, uh, the language, uh, the language, their identity, um, uh, mosque, it's their home or their community. For some, it's the music uh, space or the art museum. So it's for them to start that process of defining what is home and what is relevant in that home and how do I build my home beyond um, uh, the current home. This is the challenge of beyond losing the place you call home. It's how do you build that resilience, build that adaptation journey, and make it in a way that is not one of humanitarian emergency, because we don't do well at humanitarian emergencies. Do and and build and build a process and build. Um, uh, uh, a construct that is permanent in time rather than something temporary um, for the reasons that you mentioned, because they have no choice to go in back. Mm. And last but not least, build the construct and define their terms in a way that they are resilient mm. and not victims. And can hold on to their dignity. I think dignity is a major aspect. It's at the essence of human, uh, of human uh, standing. Yeah. And yeah. it's not for us to decide what is their dignity. And no. what is important in that dignity. You cannot codify most of these aspects. You could express best practice. Uh, you could expect, you know, a comparative analysis. But as I said, my cousin, you take the football team from him, he's nobody. Religiously, hmm. football is, um, is, uh, is, is cherished. Yeah. So now at this juncture, we move on to a little less uh, hard topics which is uh, coming to your fellowship in Berlin. Um, so we always like to ask our fellows if there was a particular highlight, maybe even a low light <laughs> during your time in Berlin, which left you like, you know, a little surprised, taken aback, and then it, it stayed with you, like one of your first or your permanent impressions of Germany when you think about Germany, what would come to your mind? I have to say to whoever get the chance to listen to this um to the podcast, um, politics is local. Do not think because you know of the global north or you studied in one of the countries of Europe or, or the Americas that um, it's all one fit um, people, community, priorities, uh, intellect, uh, expectations. I was quite surprised to see how Germany at the core, particularly as um, as uh, a professor of international relations, as the product of the UN system, you uh, and the role of Germany at the core of the international uh, 
uh, based rules system, the international diplomacy, uh, a like-minded country to many others, they still have, there is still a German way. Mm-hmm. And I, it was honestly, not only a, not on surprise, but a privilege to get to understand the, you know. How would you describe that? What German is the German way, <laughs> way exactly? <laughs> but you know, this is something very interesting. And, 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 and. Because uh, Germans debate this for centuries. And you, no, no. <laughs> and you know this because there is, um, in France, they call it l'exception française. Mm-hmm. And it's part of who they are. We are at the heart of uh, Europe. We are at the heart of the uh, the global democratic system. Where, but there is l'exception française. There's so also oh, American exceptionalism. Lots of countries of claim course. they're exceptional. <laughs> so my point here, we have to acknowledge and to celebrate the German exception. Which is? Which is a different way of um, uh, thinking, processing the thinking, a different uh, needs when it comes to um, designing and devising policy, a set of requirement and mindsets uh, to be at ease or at peace with uh, with the sets of uh, decisions or actions. Um, it's the construct and the sequencing is different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not because it's obvious or, or, or relevant that it's taken for granted, which is the case in many other um, uh, like-minded countries. And mm-hmm. here I'm not looking at Botswana. Also, it's one of the, the strongest defined democracies of, uh, of the African continent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was for me, honestly, a beautiful uh, artistic word or an aesthetic word to get to be exposed and understand uh, la manière de faire Uh, Allemand, a, a German way. Although it sometimes drove you crazy. <laughs> <when> we... <laughs> well, it, it comes with the territory, you know. It's it's the yin and the yang, and that's that's the essence of beauty, you know. You can, uh, it's, is it proportional sometimes? Is it uh, is it necessary? I don't know. <laughs> voilà. um, we also like to ask you if there is a piece of art, some book that you've come across recently, which keeps you inspired every day you wake up and you think, okay, you know, I read this and this inspires me to keep doing what I'm doing. And then there is a part two question because the topic that you're working on is extremely relevant for the youth because it's their future that we are kind of gambling with. Um, So is there something that you would suggest to them that they should read, maybe think about, watch? Because, you know, maybe that will help them understand to stay committed to this cause or get increasingly committed to the work that needs to be done. So a two-part question on inspiration. On inspiration, I will respond by two quotes that remain very close to my heart and that were both said by two different people, two different continents, two different times and crises. Mm-hmm. One is uh, Winston Churchill discussing of um, the need and the, um, to be resilient of the British people uh, in face of um, the, the, uh, the crisis they were going through in the Second World War, uh, the only failure is to give up, mm-hmm. which means for me, you have to keep pushing, pushing and pushing until you are able to achieve some progress, some change and some success. Mm-hmm. That's one. And the second, It's a saying, or it's a say by the Prime Minister of Tuvalu, completely on the other side, which is this crisis, which we have to keep 
pushing to address, to find solution is not of our making, but it will remake them. And that for me defines the essence of responsibility mm -hmm. for the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. They have not decided what they're going to become. It's been predestined, it, predecided. It has been imposed to them mm -hmm. by others. And that is for me, the responsibility. And the reason to fight. And the reason to fight. So these two sayings, different times, different reasons, but two crises. Mm -hmm. uh, they stay very close to my heart because they represent the resilience that two leaders try to build in their communities during difficult moments. Mm. Um, and I hope it will speak to the British people as much it's speaking to the Tuvaluan and everything that is in between. For the youth, the future is now. Make sure you are part of the decision. Make sure that you are um, an author of your future and your, your destiny and do not be overwhelmed uh, by some limited circumstances or timely situations. It's a process we all learn, but the most important is we all speak up and voice uh, what we want and what we need. Mm -hmm. And at the end, it's a compromise that we will need to figure out. And this brings me back to the question that you raised on the legal system. Mm -hmm. As a strong believer in democracy, with all its downside, it is key that we provide the space for people to speak, to engage, and to discuss. Otherwise, compromise is never achieved. Mm -hmm. And the tyranny of the majority will define the democracy we're trying to build, which we hope or we work towards that is inclusive, pluralistic and participative, but not focused on the 50% plus one deciding for the rest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and legal challenges can always be overcome by someone who worked with very good lawyers for a lot of- Laws can um, be changed. Laws can not be before, before even going into legal work. The laws can be changed. As I always tell my lawyer friends, uh, they're nothing more than the handyman of the philosophers. You know, like law is nothing else but the practical application of a normative statement. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, can laws I can be changed. Laws you know, can be changed. Vote for different people. <laughs> Get it changed. But go vote. Um, very much. Kamal, thank you very much for, for sharing your, your insights on, on this extremely important work you're doing. And uh, uh, we were happy that, uh, you know, we could host you for a couple of months and, and you will come back soon. Thank you very much for spending your time with us. And next month, we have another fellow with us, Amy Semple-Ward, who just arrived. Amy is the CEO of N10, a nonprofit that, quote, creating a world where missions and movements are more successful through the skillful and equitable use of technology. And if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Amy is currently a fellow at the Academy and just arrived this month. Until then, tune in, give us your feedback, the references that we mentioned, including a call for action that Kamal was publishing uh, with the foundation and other actors during his fellowship here will be at the bottom of the podcast. Subscribe. And if you have any comments, feedback, questions, write us to contact at rohrboschacademy.de. Thank you, Kamal. Thank you for having me. Think, Debate, Inspire, a podcast of the Robert Bosch Academy, presenting inspiring ideas to address major challenges of our time. Subscribe to our podcast on all platforms.